there! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Okay, so we were in Paris for two nights. Long story, not going to get into that. On the first night, we're in the lobby of the hotel chatting with the concierge. I can't remember his name, but let's say his name was Sylvain. So we're chatting with Sylvain, and he sets us up on um, a walking tour uh, of the city that we can do on our own the next day, because we were asking him, you know, we're only here, we've only got one full day in the city, so what can we do in that time? So he knows we're not going to go into the Louvre, we don't have time. So he creates this path for us where we can see a whole bunch of really cool things just by walking around. So the next day, that's what we did, and it was great. It was about a 10-kilometer walk altogether with lots of stops here, there, and everywhere. And the end of that day, we decided that... Uh, we would go out for dinner, and then what we would like to do is buy a bottle of wine and just sit up in our hotel room and drink a bottle of wine. Then we realized that we, we'd better not buy a bottle of wine until we are assured that we have a corkscrew. So we go into our hotel. We come in off the street and go into our hotel. It's a different guy at the front desk. It is not Sylvain. It is this other guy. And we say, hey, we are guests here at this hotel and we want to buy a bottle of wine. Is it possible for us to get a corkscrew so we can open the bottle of wine? And we're thinking, we mean like later we need a corkscrew. But he goes into the bar right then and there and grabs us a corkscrew and gives us to us, gives it to us, at which point we walk out because we're going for dinner. <laughs> and we're kind of chuckling, going like, he doesn't know who we are. He's just, these people have walked in off the street. He's given us a corkscrew, a sharp implement, and we've left. We've, we've walked out. Okay, anyway, we know we're cool. He doesn't. We go for dinner. We go to this little grocery store-ish place and find a bottle of wine. It is not bottom shelf. The bottom shelf wine is about maybe one euro. And the second shelf from the bottom wine is maybe three. So we buy a bottle of, of three euro red wine. And we think, what would go nicely with this bottle of wine? But some cheese, I don't know, some blue cheese, because we like that. And there on La Rue Claire, which is right, the, the street on which our the restaurant was that we went for dinner, is a cheese shop great. So with thoughts of Monty Python in our heads, we go into the cheese shop and there's lots and lots of cheese and we find this lovely round of blue cheese. Now we are going back to England the next day and we can't take blue cheese with us across the border. So we can't buy more than we can eat that night. We only need a little bit. There's this great big round of... Um, of blue cheese that's probably about nine inches across. And there's a sizable wedge cut out of it, just sitting right in front of it. But even the wedge is way too big. So, and I'm speaking in French to the the shopkeeper, saying, we would love to have some of that blue cheese. Um, would it be possible to cut a small portion of it? You know, like the wedge that's already cut, if we could maybe get, you know, a third of that size. That's kind of what I'm, that's kind of the idea I'm going for here. 
And the answer was, no. <laughs> and I explained, well, you see, it is just the two of us, and so we that that piece is too big, and so could could we not just have a uh, smaller piece of the cheese? And the answer was, again, no. And I said, merci, and we laughed, <laughs> and and went back to our hotel, where we used the corkscrew to open the lovely three-euro bottle of wine and sat in our hotel room and drank wine with no cheese at all. And could not help but make the comparison with Monty Python's cheese shop sketch where the guy is more than willing to sell some cheese, but he doesn't actually have any. (laughs) The guy goes in, I would like to buy some cheese. Oh, we have lots of cheese. What kind would you like, sir? Well... How about cheddar? Oh, we don't have any of that. Well, what do you mean you don't have any cheddar? It's the single most popular cheese in the world. Oh, not round here, sir. How about some gorgonzola? Oh, it's a bit runny. <laughs> do you actually have any cheese? Well, no, sir. I've been deliberately wasting your time. Yeah. <laughs> compare, compare that with the French cheese shop that has tons and tons of cheese, but does not want to sell you any at all. And... That is my story of the cheese shop. When we last saw Kier, she had just found the path to go up to the Indian Caves. And that is where we will find her now. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 21 Determination 1 Sweating in spite of the sunshine's pallor filtering through the trees, panting as if she'd been running for two hours rather than walking for one, she wondered if the path would ever end. Why is this place called the Inden Hills when it ought to be the Inden giant bloody cliffs? For ages they had climbed. They were on a southward part of the switchback when Trig whinnied in discomfort, and Kier finally woke up to recognize that she was pushing herself and her animal through thorny tendrils of plants that lined the path. Sorry, boy. She gently pushed her sword against the spiky arms to create more room. The path did not seem to open. In fact, the path came to an abrupt end in front of her. Too focused she had been on her destination to notice that the bush was growing. Each touch against its branches inspired several feet of new life. Whoa! Kier cried, stopping and leaning backward into Trigg to persuade him to reverse. Spiny arms crisscrossed rapidly in front of her, a deep creaking sound emanating from the plant that made Kier's skin crawl. What are you doing? I'm sorry, she said, then felt foolish for doing so. Apologizing to a plant? Well, fennel would approve. Despair tugged at her chest as she watched the prickly limbs form a canopy over her head. Just as panic swelled to a scream, the growth slowed and finally halted. Kier looked helplessly about her for some other path. Had she missed a fork somewhere? The shadows were already lengthening along the downhill side of the trail. In just over an hour or so, the sun would descend behind the mountain she had climbed, laying a blanket of darkness over her mission, leaving her alone. Kier sat down in the dappled light and breathed hard. What do I do? Where was Kami now? The great wizard was supposed to tell her how to get everything they needed. 
She stared up at the plant that completely barred her way. Am I to understand I'm very close to the cave entrance? Is that why you're doing this? Trigg replied by nuzzling her neck, and she absentmindedly held up her hand for him to sniff. He hooshed air onto her palm, reminding her that he still cared, even though she was a lying, negligent deserter who now would end up with nothing to show for her efforts but some holes in her skin where thorns had pierced. Then a thought struck her. Gilvray had said he had seen the cave doors. Obviously, he could get by. There must be a way. Alon, Kian, Valraker, help me out here. Give me some ideas. The blade had annoyed the bush. What would soothe it into submission? A shiver went through her, and Kier assumed it was a breeze, except that she did not feel the air move. Then she felt the plant shiver again in the dim light. She jumped to her feet, spinning wildly about, waiting for the plant to begin its crazy spurt again. Kier didn't so much hear the bush speak as she felt it send words into her mind. Why do you come? Kier was startled, not by its words, but by the language it chose. The plant spoke to her in dark elvish. How did this creature know that she was familiar with that forbidden tongue? Hold on, she corrected herself. How does a plant speak dark elvish? How do you, the plant said. Kier was certain the voice held a hint of amusement. I was taught it, Kier said to the plant, standing straighter to maintain dignity. Very well, the plant said. I return to my initial query. Was this some sort of trick? Ah, uh, I come to—oh, by the god's breath, how would this thing react to her saying she intended to enter the caves? Kier doubted that lying was an option. She settled on the truth. I'm on a mission from Lord Kian Barthelon, her chin lifted a touch, for Lord Valraker. I wish to enter the Indian Caves to find a type of dust. It's the ingredient in a, a, a medicine for a friend. She may die without it. The plant's dark elvish words flowed into her head like a song. And how do you propose to enter? I have the key, Kier answered. I can't believe I'm carrying on a conversation with a bush, she said to herself, and the plant laughed. Laughed? This whole thing was preposterous. Show me. I can't, Kier said automatically. I have it memorized. A tremor shinnied through the bush that Kier could only interpret as surprise. Show me, it said again, in your mind. Kier nodded and pictured herself once again sitting at Major Gilvray's desk, the leather pouch clear in front of her eyes. The completed rune pattern etched into it was as vivid as if it truly sat before her. The motion from the bush, the creature, felt more or less like a nod, and again Kier sensed surprise. That you can memorize this is interesting to me, "'How is it that you speak the ancient dark tongue?' the thorny plant asked. Kier's reflexes leapt to defense. "'You spoke first. How did you know I speak it?' To Kier's surprise, the creature was not quick to answer. She sensed its hesitation. "'If you do not know, then it is not the place of this Treyern to tell you,' it answered finally. "'Know what?' Kier demanded. "'Tell me what!' Annoyance trifled within her, all these people dropping hints at her, but nobody giving her the straight goods. Kami, the guardian, Frederick, and now a plant. It was bloody irritating. As if the young warrior had not experienced enough amazement for one day, the treyern withdrew. 
its gnarled vines untwisted and recoiled, ungrowing almost as quickly as they had grown. The long intertwined thorns crisscrossed in the reverse direction, essentially shrinking back into their source. The main plant was hidden from Kier's view, so it appeared that the tray urn was retreating into nothingness. Her frustration gave way to wonder as the path widened in front of her. Um, thank you, she thought, and led Trigg along the final few paces of the trail and into an open space. The twenty-by-twenty-foot veranda was enclosed by trees on three sides, though Kier's familiarity with the switchback trail told her that was a pretty nasty drop over the edge on the left side. Heart-pounding, she took a deep breath and turned to the right. Two rectangular pillars of stone stood about four feet in front of the doors, obelisks like sentries guarding a great edifice, with only enough space for one average person to walk between them. Above the pillars, the mountains stretched up in both west and north. Kier willed herself to take the few steps to navigate herself around the pillars, and there, bold and daunting, timeless in the lack of overgrowth that framed them, were the great doors to the Indian Caves. Kier stared at the mass of designs that covered the doors from top to bottom and allowed her shoulders to sag in dismay. Ten feet high, each four feet wide, and a mess of scrawled lettering. Though when Kier studied the doors more closely, she could see that these were no scrawled letters, but the result of likely many months of painstaking effort. Minute attention had been paid to the detail of the carved designs. A maze. Every inch of the stone was occupied. And I'm supposed to find a section of three-inch diameter? How was she ever going to find the tiny spot that matched the rune pattern in her memory? She could be here for days. And even if she found it, what was she to do? Stepping back, she realized the sun was sinking behind the mountain, and with the stone pillars before the door, Kier and the doors were already in shadow. Soon she would be in darkness. She had a half hour at best. And I'd far rather sleep indoors than out here, I think. Then she remembered the gift Falraker had given her upon their departure from Shale. Digging around in her saddlebag, her fingers closed around a key. With it in hand, she stood before the doors and stared at the key. There was no obvious keyhole, so where? She found a spot near the center, a likely place for a keyhole to be situated. She touched the tip of the key to the spot and gave it a turn as if it were a keyhole in any door. A small flash startled her and the key fell to the dirt. It had had no effect on the door. Cursing having wasted one of the key's four uses, she stuck it in her pocket and glared at the door again. Time for Plan B. She scanned the door's upper section and quickly realized she was going to need a system, a methodical approach. Common sense told her that the pattern was more likely to be found near the middle than the bottom. After all, grown men and women had to enter here regularly, so would they put the keyhole in a location that would prompt convoluted contortions for use? At any rate, it was a way to begin. Starting on the left, just below her own eye level, Kier began to examine the rune engravings in one-inch sections, one by one, searching for the same design as on the left-hand side of the stone disc, a set of concentric circles with a slightly curved zigzag attached just below on the right. She drew it forth from her memory, the feel of the cool stone in her left hand as she'd studied it. Her fingertips recalled the roughness of the grooves as she'd traced them before etching them into the soft leather. She felt again the weight of the penknife in her right hand, but focused her vision on the design she was recreating. 
The memory had risen so close to the surface that Kier could virtually feel the stone disc in her hand and glance down at it to watch both it and the stone wall for a match. <laughs> of course, I could have been holding the damn thing upside down. But she didn't think so. Back and forth, left to right and right to left, heading higher by an inch with each passage. More than once she found one or even two or three of the connecting patterns, but then the surrounding ones strayed from the picture. Her eyes were beginning to ache. She left her finger on the door so she wouldn't lose her place, but stepped back to rest her eyes for a moment. When she returned her gaze to where her finger rested, she got confused. Surely that was an inverted Y a moment ago. Then, what? She went back over the places she'd already looked. None of it was familiar. Hands shaking, she went back to where she'd started. Sure enough, the pattern had changed. Bloody dark elves! No wonder they needed the key. It wasn't just that one had to remember a certain location on the door. The runes would be in a different configuration every time the door was approached. Shit, she'd have to start again. Dimmer and dimmer was the light, and Kier had to move in closer. This is ridiculous. It's going to be blacker than under the cold fells in moments. She stepped back and leaned against a pillar. Drawing her dagger, she approached a tree. This time, she did not need to be reminded what to do. She'd learned from the tray urn never to hack and slash at bushes ever again. I need a torch, may I? No response. She glanced anxiously around at the deepening shadows. Inhale, exhale. Okay, this is a dark elvish place, right? There was no harm in trying, so she repeated the question in dark elvish. This time, she received a response in the affirmative. She chose a straightish limb and bent it at the Y to break it, cutting it only when it would break no further. She trimmed it and wrapped the head of it in a rag doused in oil. She stuck it into the ground near the doors and applied flint and steel. That should give me about an hour. Then she set to thinking like a dark elf. "'We will halt here,' Derry said, "'and begin the hike up the trail in the morning.' "'What's wrong with going now?' the woman called Misty demanded. Derry dismounted and didn't bother looking at her. It's too dark and we don't know how far up that mountainside we have to go. Misty spoke to Frederick this time. I thought you were chief, Hunter. Why are we taking orders from this one? Scorn tipped her words. Because you lot joined us, not the other way around. Derry said, asserting his authority, and I give the orders for this mission, not Hunter. Misty eyed him through her lashes, glanced at her chief, and did not respond. Was that resentment or shock on Frederick's face, or both? Derry stared him down. Not surprisingly, the two camps did not intermingle, but separated themselves by about twenty paces. The mood around the fire was gloomy. Janik kept a wary eye over at the other camp. "'What are they talking about over there, do you think?' "'Does Frederick know about the key?' asked Skimnoddle. Derry shook his head and swallowed his bite. "'Not unless one of you told him.' "'What are we even doing here?' said Fennel despondently. "'We have no idea what we're looking for.' "'Well,' said Derry with forced cheer, "'we're going to do the best we can.' "'I don't see how we'll get anywhere without the key.' I am not prepared to give up at this point, Derry said more firmly. It seems futile without Kier, Fennel insisted. 
Look, Fennel, Derry said, his patience wearing thin, we can't keep going on about Kier. Kier, in case you hadn't noticed, is not here. She had other things to do that were more pressing than saving Alon Mare's life, so she left. Again. And this time it's for good. His volume rose as the many hours and days of emotion and frustration leapt out of him like popcorn. Kier went off to play with Kami, who's evidently a better friend to her than we are. At least he has what she needs, and we don't, apparently. I don't blame her, Fennel sat up straighter. How well have we treated her lately? Talking about her behind her back, accusing her of negligence without even... Did you actually ask her what's been going on? A small pang of regret touched Derry's heart, but he dismissed it angrily. She had plenty of time to explain herself. I will not let him make this my fault. Maybe there's something really wrong that she's somehow afraid to tell us. I am her friend and her captain. She can tell me anything. She knows that. He looked to Jaskelin for support. The mage opened and closed his mouth. Does she really? Fennel demanded. You haven't exactly been approachable lately. I suppose you came right out and told her what's been wrong with her behavior. You were asleep. You have no idea how she evaded every point I made. I asked her questions. She was nothing but vague and mouthy. I'd get mouthy too if I were being a... You have been getting mouthy, Fennel. Derry didn't mean to voice that. Fennel stood up. So did Jaskelin. The mage broke into the argument. This is becoming too personal, gentlemen, and is not healthy if we intend to... Oh, it's personal, all right. Fennel's glare rested on Derry, who remained stubbornly seated. Did you give any thought at all to the things I said this morning, Derry? You too, Jaskelin. Don't think you're blameless in all this. You're the one who brought up the accusation about Kier in the first place. You got it in at a good time, too, when Derry had already made up his mind that she was guilty of something. I can't stand it any more. He cast his fury around the camp. Every one of you is all set to believe what you want to believe. I'm the only one who sees that Kier's being sent down the river. This mission doesn't have a hope in seven hells of success, because we're a mess. And the one person who truly cared is gone. That got Derry to his feet. You miserable, filthy, putrid elf, how dare you? I'm going, Fennel said. Derry's stomach lurched, and don't try to shame me into staying because Valraker might not be pleased with me. My loyalty is to the guarded realm, not to him. Fennel turned his back and prepared his horse. Derry couldn't believe his ears. The elf's hypocrisy was insupportable. So now you think it's all right to cause another rift in the group? This is absolutely unacceptable. Fennel scoffed. Come on, you'd ditch me in a heartbeat, Derry, if you found another tracker. He nodded toward the other camp. Maybe Frederick can loan you his. Fennel, no, Skimnoddle said. He and Janik were standing by the fire. Derry was breathless with wrath. His mind was murky with confused thoughts. He settled on one thing Fennel had said and grabbed Layout's bridle. How can you accuse me of not caring about Alon? Fennel picked up his pack and slid it into position on Layout's back. Only then did he face the captain. His blue eyes had turned black. Kier was in it for the right reason. Not for glory, not for a reward, not even to get in anyone's good graces. Fennel looked pointedly at Derry. He put his foot in the stirrup and threw his other leg over Leot's back. Derry's body was rigid as granite. Fennel stared down at him. Kier reveres Alon Mare. She just wanted to meet her. 
That's all. Meet her while she's still alive. Something snapped in Derry's mind. Bullshit, he blurted, and the word sounded foreign even to himself. Rubbish. He fished in his pocket, whirling around to face the others. She ran off, he cried, yanking out the pouch he hadn't had the nerve to drop in the fire. She took this stupid pouch off her belt and chucked it at me. Derry flung the pouch at Skimnoddle, imitating Kier's move. Does that tell you she cares? He spread his arms wide in supplication. Nothing she said gave me reason to believe she had any motivation but her own desire. Skimnoddle fiddled with the pouch. Janik rubbed his forehead with his palm as if undecided what to think. Juskelin sighed deeply, moving toward Fennel. Please, Fennel, can we not talk? Layout hooshed and pranced. Fennel held him. I'm not interested in talking to people who aren't listening. Derry thought his brains might burst. You are the one who is not captain, Skimnoddle cried sharply. The halfling's tone demanded attention. Layout stood still. Skimnoddle's wide eyes looked ghostly in the firelight. The pouch was suspended by his nimble fingers as if it were of gossamer. Captain, this is the answer to one of the questions you did not ask, sir. Derry stepped forward and snatched it from him. He hadn't noticed that the pouch had been inside out, but he saw at once that Skimnoddle had turned it the right way around. At first he couldn't make out what the halfling meant, but the firelight picked up a marking that caught his eye. His breath stuck in his throat as he finally saw what was scratched neatly into the soft leather with every possible attention to detail. In his mind he heard Kier's voice, "'Maybe I'll go steal the runes.' "'Oh, look,' Skimnoddle murmured. "'She stole the runes.' Derry's legs liquefied. He sank to his knees. With shaking hands he tilted the pouch toward the firelight to scrutinize the rune pattern that had been painstakingly recreated there. "'By the goddess, what have I done?' Fennel couldn't remain on horseback amid the frenzy of emotions, excitement at the discovery, a babble of speculation around how she'd accomplished this outrageous feat, the validation of one man's loyalty, the shame of the other's lack of faith. In the midst of it all, Derry found himself suddenly face to face with Fennel. No words were exchanged. Derry could think of nothing that would sufficiently repair his actions, and the elf seemed to feel enough words had been spoken. Derry held out his hand. Fennel frowned as if reluctant, but at last his eyes gleamed blue again. He shook Derry's hand. Regret and dejection at the loss of Kier were renewed tenfold now that there was no question as to her movements of the night before. None felt it as keenly as Derry, who had spent the past night and day thinking such terrible thoughts about her. What have I done? he thought. What have I done? Jeskelin found himself more confused than ever about Frederick's claims. He could not deny that Kier had proven a certain dedication last night, but neither would he deny the soundness of Frederick's words. "'It is well that I am capable of clear thinking,' he said to himself. Someone had to remain objective. "'I want us to keep a decent watch throughout the night,' Derry said quietly to his group when they were finally ready to bed down." as much to keep an eye on them as for anything else. He took the first watch himself. Fennel was smarter than Derry'd given him credit for. How could he have been so thick? 
He was so caught up in his own indignation over Kier's behavior, so hurt, yes, he had to admit it, by many of her words, staggered that she'd taken control of the argument and crushed his triumph with her reason. Something has seriously botched up your judgment, Derry. What kind of a night lets that happen? Kier was too right. He didn't know how it had begun, or when, but he had indeed lost perspective, lost his judgment of character. His mind was a mire of perplexity, he who had always known who he was, what he wanted. And above all, Derry Morant knew right from wrong, didn't he? My friend! The icy words came back to chill him. Every little thing he'd said seemed to make so much sense at the time. Now, as his own and her remarks replayed in his head, it all felt wholly ridiculous. He had accused her of wantonness. He had accused her of neglecting their mission. Indeed, some form of madness had come over him. There was no other explanation. He ought to have known there was some good reason for her being late, for her leaving them, for everything. He couldn't even remember why he hadn't trusted her. None of it made sense any more. Kier had produced results where the rest of them had just spent the evening arguing. She was worthy of his highest regard, not his contempt. Derry closed his eyes. He felt terribly ashamed and foolish. Probably the closest friend he had ever had, and in a fit of madness he had destroyed everything. He could not bear the thought of being without her steady, loyal friendship, on which he suddenly realized he had come to rely. And now she was gone and he was enmeshed in a hunt for evidence that she'd cursed Alon Mare. She'd have been within her rights to kill him for his accusations, but instead she'd given him a good long time to think about how utterly absurd you've been. Derry accepted his sentence and woke Fennel after a couple of hours. The elf ambled around the camp, noting that the other group had relied on them to post a watch. Evidently that crowd feared nothing out in the Indian Hills during wartime. Fennel hadn't slept much during Derry's watch. Kier's vindication was a powerful stimulant. His euphoria would keep him going for days. And now he was more determined than ever to carry on where Kier had left off. The mission would be a success, and Fennel would let everyone know Kier's part in it. After a while his legs grew tired, which did not strike him as odd. He sat down to rest for a few minutes. Not long after, he grew drowsy, so he rose to fight it off. It was because of the emotional day and lack of real sleep in the early watch. In spite of all his efforts, he became unaccountably weary and lay down on his bed, just for a moment or two. They don't need a watch. There can't be anything to worry about. Misty sat up. She repeated the cantrip and waved her white hand enough times to ensure the deep sleep of both parties— Though she didn't worry about Juggler, he was in on the plan. Stealth was hardly necessary, but it came naturally to her. Quickly and silently she hunted through the belongings of each of Valraker's group, including pouches that were on their sleeping bodies. Her deft fingers detached pouches and vials of lichen, slipping them into her own pockets. It pleased her that she did not find any of the Talima. The only sample of the little white flower was in a bottle in her own possession. Without that ingredient, their antidote was likely useless anyway, but Misty did not take chances. She left no trace of her intrusion. Until they checked their supplies, no one would know they'd been searched. They each carried samples of the ingredients, as she'd suspected. The halfling was the only one who disappointed her. 
Halflings were known for being clumsy and careless. Perhaps they didn't trust him to take good enough care of his share. By his baggage, he looked to be only the cook for the group anyhow, though she imagined he must have some other uses, probably as fodder to throw at wild animals. He slept face down with his hood half obscuring his face. She thought he might be familiar, but dismissed the thought. Those stupid creatures all look the same. With her prizes securely tied in a sack, she returned to her bed. Chief Hunter thought he was going to be showered with glory upon returning to Barthelon Castle. Think again. She hid the sack in the bottom of her bedroll, gave Juggler a loving pat on the cheek, and lay down. As an afterthought, she waved her hand toward the elf. Fennel sat bolt upright. Heart pounding, he looked frantically around. What had awakened him? I fell asleep, damn it! A look up at the position of the moon told him he'd been unconscious for more than half an hour. He sighed. That's not so bad. At least he felt refreshed and would not have to keep fighting fatigue for the rest of his watch. He decided there was no need to admit his lapse to Derry. If I were Dark Elven, Kier said in their language, where would I put the keyhole? She closed her eyes and tried to recall every word Brendau had ever said about Dark Elvish ways. She imagined herself in his drawing room, chatting in Dark Elvish over tea and biscuits, discussing their artwork, their music, their trade goods, their philosophies. Dark Elven children are taught from a very young age to be independent, Brendau said. From the time they can walk, they are taught survival skills, including spells to protect themselves. Protect themselves from what? Kier asked. What could a child have to protect herself from if her parents are around? Ah, but that is the problem, her mentor replied. What if they are not? There is always the possibility that the adult will be harmed in some way. The world seems a safe place to a child, but the reality is the opposite. A child must protect herself from her own fear. She learns to hunt and cook. She learns to keep warm and dry. Isn't that everyone? That isn't limited to dark elves. No, that isn't. But no other elven race learns to hide from her enemies in quite the same way, or learns to feel and to listen in quite the same way. Plus, they had their own method of communication. They used to say, thank the fates for dark elven traits. Kier looked at him with a doubtful grin. Really, Brendau? In what way? I mean, I used to be able to hide from Della for ages, and she wouldn't find me until I was ready to be found. Aren't all children good at that? Brendau shrugged. To a certain extent, that is true. But hiding out in the open is a different skill altogether. And as for listening... The conversations would extend into the dusk, when Kier would finally recall her duties at home and hasten away. As she now hastened back to the doors of the Inden Caves, her left hand raised, she still felt as though the stone disc were solid, cool in her palm. She closed her eyes, felt, listened, hiding out in the open. Something touched her, like a soft fingertip between her brows. The hairs on the back of her neck rose like the spears in an enemy front line. A breeze flitted through the stone pillars behind her where she had not felt any air movement from the time she'd arrived. She shivered, fear climbing up her spine. She listened and heard voices, a jumble of them talking, chattering, singing, as if a party were going on somewhere. They faded out and in again like waves on a windy sea. 
Kier forced the fear back down and tried to breathe. She wanted to spin around and flee. Her skin crinkled as if a ghost had just brushed against her. All senses were heightened, but still she did not allow herself to run. She listened and opened her eyes. They were fixed on the left side of the door, at a place a little below where she had begun her search. Not taking her eyes from the three-inch spot, she stepped nearer to confirm it. Plain as the disk itself in broad daylight was the rune pattern on the door. It stood out so boldly from the rest of the etchings in the stone that Kier was floored that she had not seen it before. She blinked slowly, testing herself. Yes, it was still there. Thank the fates for dark elven traits. Palms sweating, she fixed her gaze on the spot. She licked her lips in concentration. Now for the red light. It was just an idea, but it was all she had. No, it was a gut feeling, a sixth sense. The key that Gilray had in his possession was inlaid with five colored gems. She'd thought them merely decorative at the time, but some instinct told her they meant much more. At least, one of them did. One of them was red. She'd left the key with Gilvray, but if her idea were correct, oh, please let it be correct, she didn't need it. Without shifting her eyes, she wiped her palms on her trousers and slowly drew her sword. She adjusted her footing, planting them firmly, as she held the weapon pommel up in front of her. The gem gleamed in anticipation, as if it had been waiting all its life for this moment. She reached behind her, feeling for heat, to grab the torch without burning her hand. Every fiber of muscle in her body was taut. Holding her breath, she clutched her sword by the hilt, point down. The red gem stood at attention, as breathlessly expectant as Kier. Then Kier adjusted the position of the torch behind it. The guttering light fixed on the massive ruby the way a compass needle clings to north. A spray of tiny red lights exploded out from the gem like fireworks. Kier gasped openly at the beauty of it. They danced on every surrounding surface as her hand held the sword and quivered ever so slightly. But she needed a pinpoint. Studying the pommel of her sword, she discovered a facet that appeared a fraction wider than the others, and yes, there was one to match on the opposite side. Twisting and tilting the gem, she managed to capture a larger beam of red light through that side. It refracted on the outgoing side, and she focused it on the still unmistakable keyhole. Please let this work. A sound, like a piercing high note held by a soprano, crescendoed to forte inside her head. Another breeze, stronger this time, whooshed through the entranceway, threatening to blow out the torch. Kier's hair whipped across her face. But suddenly she noticed that the breeze was blowing the wrong way. The breeze was coming from inside. The door was opening. She pushed it with one foot and thrust the torch forward so the light would shine through the door to the inside. Kier gasped again, for it seemed as though brilliant light were emanating from inside those massive doors. The flickering torch reflected off countless flecks of color and cast a rainbow down onto the awestruck woman in the doorway. With the caution and hesitation of a trespasser, she stepped into the foyer and held the torch high to look around. In spite of herself, she had not stopped listening, and though the voices had ebbed, she still fancied she could hear, or at least feel, that someone was aware of her entry. They did not seem pleased. In size, the foyer resembled Kean's meeting room at Shale Castle, 
A half-domed archway straight ahead proved to be the source of luminousness. The stone was inlaid with bright and shiny beads, gems, and bits of glass of all colors and at all angles, dazzling her with reflected light that sparkled in every direction. Tiny dots of color scattered the floor like stars. The only thing that caused her to tear her eyes away was the sputtering torch as it gave one of its last spurts of light. Kier wheeled around and thanked the last dark elves to vacate the place for leaving some extra torches by the door. With the dying breath of her own, she lit the one in the torch bracket. She kissed the brilliant red gem on the pommel of her sword and placed it tenderly in its home, then lifted the torch out of the bracket. Below the archway, a set of half a dozen semicircular steps descended into shadowy unknown. The light that glittered up here was reluctant to be swallowed by whatever lay below. Kier held the torch closer to the steps, but the light refused to pierce the blackness. It did show her another set of doors on the right side of the foyer from where she stood. Moving closer, she saw they were wooden doors, apparently heedless of the years that had passed since anyone had been here. Kier pushed one fully intact door and peeked inside. A homey and familiar smell assailed her nostrils. It was distant with age and disuse, yet easily recognizable as a stable, large enough for several horses. She went back and led Trigg into the room. He'd be comfortable for however long she would be exploring within the caves. She relieved him of her saddlebags and left them by the entrance to the stable. Then she regarded the front doors. Would they open to let her out as easily as they'd let her in? No keyhole was visible to correspond with the one outside. Her fear of allowing someone else easy access to the caves outweighed her trepidation that the doors wouldn't reopen. She'd worked hard to find the rune pattern, and so could the next fellow. The doors were surprisingly light when moving in this direction. Maybe they liked closing more than opening. With one hand on the carved-out stone handles on the back of each door, she swung them shut. A gust of wind carrying murmurs of ancient voices burst in through the last crack between them. The singing voice danced like spiders up her spine. The crack closed. The doors were shut. Kier was surrounded by the silence of unawakened dead. Not dead, she insisted. Gone. They had left. The dark elves had not died. Had they left from here in the caves? Soren had said this place was the center of their travel and communication. What did that mean exactly? Kier felt the weight of an entire race on her shoulders. She knew without a doubt that she was the first human to ever set foot in this sacred, secret place. Waves of air shifted, leaving the pervading feeling that she was not welcome. Her back prickled like the Treyern's tendrils. Had they all indeed left? Maybe there were still dark elves lurking in the passages beyond this entrance. Maybe they had taken offense to her presence here. That would explain the voices she kept hearing. Oh, Kier, you're being an idiot. She was in, and that put her much closer to finding the last ingredient, to saving Alon Mare's life, to convincing Derry that the goal mattered to her. She could not estimate the hour, but she realized she had not eaten since last night before going to see Gilvray. No wonder my mind is messing with me. She set the torch in the bracket, sat, and pulled some food out. The voices seemed louder once the light had weakened. Faint, far-off sounds like the babbling of a group of people around a dinner table, unintelligible, not even recognizable as words, just sound. And it did not come from a particular direction within the caverns. The voices floated in the air around her, or in her head. 
Weariness soon swept over her, but the feeling that something was aware of her, even observing her, could not be shaken. She strained into the darkness, listening. Still, she felt light-headed and needed rest. She lay down with a saddlebag for a pillow, wrapped in her cloak, more against the aloneness than any cold. The red, jewel-pommeled sword next to her gave her comfort. By now, Derry would have found the rune pattern. Kier hoped he had forgiven her. Uneasy sleep overtook her. My slippered feet pad up the stairs from the foyer, along the straw mats in the brightly lit corridor. I can't walk properly in this narrow shift. I resent the baskets of fresh and dried flowers and the evenly spaced candelabra on the walls. She has everything when others... But not for long. I glimpse the twilit sky through the window of the library as I pass its open door. Little wooden box in hand, I stop outside her door and straighten my apron. I can't wait to be rid of these clothes. I wipe the excitement off my face. Everything is about to change. I knock. Her clear voice answers, and I enter. She sits reading in her wing-backed armchair, with her gorgeous hair and that blouse that makes her eyes glow. It won't be long now. For you, my lady, I say. It just arrived. I hold out the box. I can't help but smile, but I at least keep it friendly. From whom, she replies, receiving it from me. From his lordship, my lady. Eyes are steady. Heartbeat, too. You'd think she'd have learned to be more cautious. She opens it and touches the necklace. It's beautiful. She turns to me. Do you know what this is, Misha? No, milady. The serpent is a symbol of undying love, she tells me. She puts it on and centers the circular snake on her chest. It is done. Please get my looking-glass off that table, Misha. I want to see how it looks. I fetch the glass and hold it up for her. Do you like it? she asks. Yes, milady, I assure her. Is there anything else you need, milady? I take a quick glance at myself in the glass, and Alon doesn't see me grin smugly at myself before setting it down. The maid kerchief is too cute and doesn't suit me. Thank you, Misha. No, you may go. She's done it. She has begun killing herself. Dear Kian. Kier leapt to her feet, sword in hand, eyes shifting furtively around the chamber. Her cry echoed far away into the depths of the intensely quiet halls. Her heart raced, her breath came in gusts, a bead of sweat pooled and started to trickle down the side of her face. The torchlight flickered as brightly as before, but it made eerie shadows dance on the walls and ceiling. The dark elven ghosts murmured all around her. She shook her head and bent her knees until they brought her bottom to the floor. Come on, Kier, pull yourself together. That damned serpent! What did Jeskelin know about that serpent? On the other hand, what did Kier know about the serpent? And the rest of the dream? Besides that the person whose body she occupied was the one who wanted to kill Alon Mare. First of all, she wasn't really a maid, that young lady. The dress Kier had worn to have dinner with Kami was the first dress she'd worn since she was about five. She managed all right in it, but that narrow shift in the dream? How did maids walk in those things? Her dream body was not accustomed to wearing such a garment, nor did she normally wear slippers like that. Kier recalled having to make sure they were on her feet properly. They felt so loose compared to her boots. 
She had had to think about the protocol used to address the Lady Alon Mare. It had required some concentration. It was as if the dream woman were not only unused to being a maid at Barthelen Castle, she was unused to being a maid at all. And the strangest thing about the woman Kier became in the dream was the confidence she felt with regards to the gift. She thought back, regular heartbeat, no heightened breathing, confidence that the gift would be well-received, anticipation, not eager curiosity to learn what was in the box, but the sort of anticipation she felt when she gave Brendau the wind chimes for his name day when she was thirteen. And the more she thought about it, the more Kier realized the difference. I knew what was in the box. She put her mind to bringing back the image of what happened just before she'd woken up. That part was new. Something had startled her. What was it? The mirror. I looked in it. Pale face. Narrow. Dark curls peeking out from under the maid's kerchief. Coal-black eyes with a vague familiarity that Kier could not place. A self-satisfied grin that Kier wanted to slap off the horrible woman's face. No, not slap off. Slice off. Whoever that dark little goddess was, she could very well already be the murderer of Kian's wife and child. Anguish twisted Kier's gut. She screwed her fists in her eyes. It was no use. She was awake now, and the sooner she did something about finding the last ingredient to the antidote, the sooner she could add it to her share of the lichen and get it to the afflicted woman. Skimnoddle had the telema. There was too little of it to share around. And she would just have to count on the others for the sap. Then, and only then, would the anguish dissipate. She slung her cloak around her shoulders, sheathed her sword, and buckled the baldric across her chest. She emptied a cloth sack of the last few pieces of stale bread and shoved it inside her cuirass. Another lit torch in hand, her heart thudded and her scalp prickled. But determination won over, and with a brow furrowed in concentration, she descended the semicircular steps into the hall of the ancient dark elvish caves. So you've heard of French doors, and you've heard of French onion soup. So if you're in France, do they still call them French doors, or do they just call them doors? And do they call it French onion soup, or do they just call it onion soup? I should have asked Sylvain. Thank you to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. And thanks to you. Now, go be fantastic. Oh, the cat's eating it.